Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness, leaving us feeling as if all of the beliefs that have been guiding us have disappeared and thus unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering in the Christian life. The first two volumes, When the Stars Disappear and Give Me Understanding That I May Live, are available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. Mark's conversation partner for this episode is Carl K.J. Johnson. K.J. is a retired Marine Corps officer who now directs the C.S. Lewis Institute in Chicago, where he oversees programs that foster discipleship of heart and mind, specifically the C.S. Lewis Fellows Program. Mark and KJ wrap up their discussion of the suffering that we may experience because of our first parents' rebellion by showing what is wrong with prosperity preaching, and then turn to begin exploring the last two parts of the full Christian story, redemption and consummation. Let's listen in. Well, Mark, so far, the message of most of our episodes, I got to say, they've been pretty bleak. (laughs) Because we're considering primarily the content of your third chapter and give me understanding that I may live, which is aptly titled suffering, we've stressed that the sin of our first parents and and our own sins means that suffering's an inevitable part of life. Of course, our favorite prosperity preachers would vehemently disagree. What, What say you? Well, of course they would, KJ. In fact, some of them hold that we can make a bargain with God. Hmm. That means everything will go well ever after we make the bargain. For example, when I wasn't sleeping the other night, I turned the TV on and I heard one of them claim that we can make a single decision. Interestingly enough, it would involve sending money to him (laughs) to cast seed, as they say, to produce good in our lives And if we did that, then God would bless us forever after. This guy actually said that one good decision like that would counter all of the bad decisions that we have made earlier in our lives. Uh, All of those bad decisions would be kind of neutralized or wiped out if only we did this. So the idea was if we cast seed in the form of sending him money, then God will bring to harvest all sorts of good things in our lives. And he claimed that after he had discovered that secret and had cast such seed, that God had given him in a single day a black Corvette and a Rolex watch. Yeah, I bet those seeds come in a variety of denominations too. Um, (laughs) I tell you, Mark, this sort of teaching really frustrates me. It's been... It's intersected into my life a number of times. And, you know, on the one hand, it's it's just so obviously wrong. It doesn't take a degree in theology to see how this runs counter to the picture of God that we see in Scripture. But on the other hand, it's it's not a God I want to follow. I, I don't want to follow God who can be bought off or bribed. I mean, it's very – it's antithetical to the very version of God that we see as a wise and loving father. That's right. That This sort of view that this preacher was taking takes our relationship with God to be basically transactional. What I mean by that is that according to this way of looking at it, 
it's like putting your money into a soda machine yeah. and hitting a button and getting the soda. The result is guaranteed as long as you do what's required. Taking our relationship with God like that impersonalizes the relationship. It mechanizes it. It's no longer a matter of a wise, loving father treating us in ways that he knows are good for us, whether or not we understand what he's doing. In fact, as we saw a couple of episodes back, the psalmist confessed that it was good for him to be afflicted because through that affliction, he learned to keep God's word. He said, I know, O Lord, that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We need to combine verses like that with what we're told in Hebrews 12, 7 through 11, where the writer of Hebrews says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone, he says, undergoes discipline, then you're not true sons and daughters at all. He goes on and he says, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. And then the writer of Hebrews concludes that passage saying this, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Hmm. That, of course, suggests that it's only after we have suffered that we're likely to realize that God meant that suffering for our good. Yeah, I love that fusion of Old and New Testament. I mean, I fall back and rely on the promises of God from the Old Testament a lot, especially lately, uh, having been uh, camped out in the Old Testament. And we're reminded constantly by the prophets and by the psalmists and by God himself that he's steadfast and that his love endures forever, despite the difficult conditions in which we find ourselves. And one might say, because of the difficult conditions. Right. We... Why I would ask why we'd have to bargain with God, going back to our earlier comments here, if he repeatedly calls on us to rely on him. I mean, in <laughs> fact, several of Judah's kings got in trouble for turning to other countries other than turning to God for their very security. So this idea of the prosperity gospel just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I really like that question you're asking. Why would we have to bargain with God Yeah, when he repeatedly just calls us or invites us to rely on him. He's not waiting for us to make a bargain with him. No. He's asking us simply to rely on him. I think we also need to remember what Paul says in Romans 8. Mm. After he's stressed how all of creation has been subjected to futility because of Adam and Eve's sin, he goes on to write, this is verse 28, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Mm. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. 
And then he goes on and he declares, and this, this is a man who knew intense suffering and much suffering. For sure. He then goes on to declare that nothing, absolutely nothing, not any sort of trouble or calamity or persecution or hunger or destitution or danger or any sort of violent death, nothing can separate us from our Lord's love. No, Paul declares, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced, he continues as he's finishing chapter 8 of Romans, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, he says. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, all of those passages, the Old Testament ones and the New Testament ones, mm. all of them assume that Christians will suffer. Christians are not exempt from suffering. We may, in fact, according to passages like those, suffer quite terribly. That's why Paul lists all of those awful possibilities. We may, according to those passages, suffer quite terribly, and yet, and yet, we have God's promise and our Lord's resurrection to assure us that to whatever degree we suffer, someday, our suffering will be over, and even our bodies will be redeemed and released from sin and suffering. It's in that hope, Paul tells us a little earlier in Romans 8, it's in that hope that we are saved. Yet, as he stresses, hope that is seen isn't hope. For who hopes for what he sees? So we must, he concludes, hope for what we do not see, and thus, as he concludes, wait for it with patience. Wait for it with patience. Well, I'm trying to be patient here, Mark, but we're still in pretty bleak territory. Why? Tell me why, before we move on, why are we spending so much time on this? There's got to be something of import here. There is. The reason we've needed to emphasize how bad our suffering may get is that our faith is likely to be most at risk when we experience some sort of profound suffering mm. without having any sense that both Scripture and Christian history acknowledge that Christians may suffer profoundly. Mm. By suggesting that Christians needn't suffer, health and wealth and prosperity preachers are doing a profound disservice to Christians Amen. and to Christian faith. Yet, and this is an absolutely crucial yet, yet the cessation of suffering is not our primary hope. Oh. Our primary hope is for the restoration of our communion with God in Christ. As some of our listeners will remember, Paul Winters and I talked about this when we were covering the first two chapters of Give Me Understanding That I May Live. 
God made us for communion with himself. As persons, our ultimate good is not the mere fact that we aren't suffering, although in fact our ultimate good will include that. As persons, our ultimate good is to be in unhindered, full communion with God and with other human beings. For, in fact, as we saw in those earlier episodes, personal life is essentially and necessarily a life of communion or of love with other persons as God's own Trinitarian life exemplifies. And so, as creatures made in his image, we are made for intimate, personal communication and communion with other persons. Intimate, personal communication and communion with both God and other humans. All right. You said the cessation of suffering is not our primary hope. I think I got that right. Right. If so, that that's an important statement there, Mark. And all too often, I think we seek the elimination of or the deliverance from suffering. And we see that as the goal, even if unconsciously, uh, even in the Christian life. And I think, I think we can see this in our prayers and in many of the life decisions we make. And if I can be so bold here to tie it back to an earlier episode, I think it emerges in our talk of flourishing. Right. That helps right. make that point a little more crystal clear for me. We pray for deliverance for suffering which isn't bad in and of itself, but I think there comes a time when we should also pray for the faith and strength to endure suffering like Paul has done. So now that we've emphasized that, where where do we go from here? Now we turn from consideration of the first two parts of the full Christian story, from creation and from rebellion, along with the suffering that inevitably follows on rebellion, to the third and fourth parts of the full Christian story, which are redemption and consummation. Together, those latter two, redemption and consummation, involve our ultimate release from all of the deleterious effects of Adam and Eve's rebellion. That's going to include the fact that their rebellion has inclined us to sin, and their rebellion and our sinfulness explains all of our suffering, including our loss of communion with God. Redemption and consummation, in fact, involve our ultimate release from all of that by means of the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that, those are big topics, and I'm eager to, to jump into these parts of the story. Where, where's the best point to begin? Well, I think it's probably a little earlier in Romans, K.J., In fact, in chapter 5, the sixth verse, Paul tells us that at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Unredeemed human life, as Henri Blochet has said, is a kind of funeral procession, a process involving various kinds of pain and debility leading inevitably to death. We see that corroborated in any number of different ways, including wars and pandemics, 
And even in the way in which the earth is warming and drought is persisting and water is becoming scarcer to the degree that it seems that there may be an existential threat to human life in a not inconceivable future. All of that makes the great fourth century Bishop Athanasius's observation that as history progresses, corruption and death are ever more gaining an ever firmer hold on human beings. It makes that observation more and more obviously true. And he goes on and he says that because of the way that corruption and death were gaining an ever firmer hold on human beings, that we who were, and he's speaking back in the fourth century, but it's even more apparent now that we who were created in God's image, and the way that he puts it is, in our possession of reason reflected the very word, capital W, reflected the very word himself, we ourselves were disappearing. And so what Athanasius concluded way back in the fourth century was that if God's creative work was not to be lost, then the word needed to become flesh in order to save us from our sins. So, of course, he was looking back to Jesus' incarnation, and the word did become flesh. Jesus was born so that he could do his Father's will. He lived a life of perfect obedience that climaxed in his giving himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, as it's put in scripture, so that we could be redeemed and God's work in creating us wouldn't be lost. He was then, as Paul puts it in Romans 4, verse 25, he was then raised for our justification. In other words, his life, death, and resurrection are the historical climax that the Old Testament witnesses to and prepares us for. That's the gospel. That's the Bible's good news. And that's what the Protevangelium of Genesis 3.15 was announcing. Now, that's what the biblical story is all about. Our Lord's redeeming work is, as C.S. Lewis wrote, the chapter in the full Christian story on which the whole plot turns. Mm. The whole plot of Scripture turns on our Lord's redeeming work during his first appearance on earth. That work is the world's most decisive event. It's the second of the three great turning points in human history. You'll remember that God's prohibiting Adam and Eve from eating from the forbidden tree and their subsequent rebellion was the first great turning point and it changed human life forever. But then, then our Lord's incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension has opened the way for those who put their faith in his earthly work to be redeemed and escape the judgment that now falls on all of us, on all human beings. And our Lord's return at the end of this world's history, our Lord's return then will separate those who have put their faith in Christ from everyone else, and it will consummate God's story by presenting those who will put their faith in Christ as his bride. 
Okay, I'm, I'm tracking with you so far. I think the problem here is that this can be pretty familiar territory with those familiar with the Christian story. So, lest we lose the forest through focusing on the trees, might be helpful if you could unpack why this is important and how it relates to the discussion we've had so far. Sure. Understanding what God has done in Christ ultimately requires us to consider the final two parts of the Christian story together. Christianity is an unfinished but fully plotted story. It's mm. unfinished, but it's fully plotted, mm. where the meaning of redemption is clear only in the light of consummation, when finally everything will be wrapped up and the full Christian story will reach a fitting conclusion. In Romans 1.18 through 3.26, KJ, Paul spells out why he's not ashamed of the gospel, as he says in Romans 1.16. He's not ashamed of the gospel, he tells us, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Mm. The gospel proclaims God's way of satisfying his righteous wrath against all of our ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now it's clear, as Paul argues from Romans 1.18 through 3.20, it's clear that the whole world is accountable. The whole world, all of us, each one of us, individually and all of us together, the whole world is accountable. That is, is guilty and condemned before God. And that's what the universal presence of suffering and death shows. But then, at Romans 3.21, we find what, in fact, I think are the two greatest words that have ever been penned. Mm -hmm. At 321, after we've found out that we're all accountable, all guilty and condemned, the first two words are, but now. In Greek, it's nunade, but now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Mm. This righteousness, Paul explains in verses 22 through 26 of chapter 3, this righteousness comes to us by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God has released us from condemnation by presenting Jesus as a, here's a big word, by presenting Jesus as a propitiatory sacrifice that we receive by faith. Jesus' death demonstrates God's righteousness so that, as Paul says in verse 26 of chapter 3, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's the way that John Stott explains all of that. He says, because Christ shed his blood in a sacrificial death for us sinners, because Christ shed his blood in a sacrificial death for us sinners, God is able justly to justify the unjust. God is able justly to justify the unjust. 
That that would be a great place to end the podcast, Mark. What a great punctuation. But I, you used some big words in there. I think it's probably helpful maybe to explain them lest we leave a few folks uh, scratching their heads. I know propitiatory was a big word for me. I think you're exactly right. And understanding all of this is absolutely crucial. For now, we're dealing with the very heart of the gospel. Yeah which is that if we put our faith in Christ's work, then we are justified. To be justified means that we are declared righteous by God Mm -hmm. in spite of our sin. So if we put our faith in Christ's work, then we're justified. We are declared righteous by God in spite of our sin. Our status before God changes if we do that, Because Jesus' death on the cross has, here's the big word again, has propitiated God's wrath. What in the world does that mean? That means, the word propitiate means that it has, Jesus' death on the cross has placated or assuaged or stilled God's anger against our sin. Now, all we have to do is think again about Psalm 90, in order to know how crucial it is for God's wrath to be propitiated. You remember, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 90 says, we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your wrath. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. And consequently, we finish our years with a moan. God the Father sent his Son to take our place, to bear our sins, and thus to die the death we deserve. By not sparing his own Son, God demonstrates his righteousness by publicly displaying his holy hatred of sin. Stott summarizes Paul's point in Romans 3, 21 through 26 like this. He says, in forgiving us, God has acted righteously by directing against his very own self in the person of his son, the full weight of that righteous wrath we deserve. In forgiving us, God has acted righteously by directing against his very own self in the person of his son, the full weight of that righteous wrath all of the Israelites in Psalm 90 and all of us deserve. In other words, Stott says, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. Mm. That's a statement worth memorizing and thinking about. God himself gave himself to save us from himself, and I would add, and indeed, to save us for himself. Yeah, I'm going to have to memorize that one. Well, thanks. These these are good terms to unpack because we don't use them in everyday speech, although I'll I'll try to slip propitiate in there somewhere today. (laughs) I think the only thing we need to add is that all of this is ours, Paul insists, only by faith. Yeah. Our redemption depends on nothing 
but are looking to God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So as Stott comments, there is nothing meritorious about faith. Mm. When we say, Stott goes on, when we say that salvation is by faith, not by works, we are not substituting one kind of merit, faith, for another works. Mm. Nor is salvation, he says, a sort of cooperative enterprise between God and us in which he contributes the cross and we contribute faith. Faith's value, Stott stresses, faith's value is not to be found in itself, but entirely and exclusively in its object, namely Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is tremendously important because we always want to think that there's some way in which we can kind of earn our status before God by maybe having more faith, that sort of thing. So, so Stott stresses that faith's value is not to be found in itself, but entirely and exclusively in its object, namely Jesus Christ and him crucified. He quotes Richard Hooker, an eminent 16th century English theologian, who put it like this, God justifies the believer not because of the worthiness of his belief, but because of the worthiness of Christ as the one who is believed. God justifies the believer not because of the worthiness of his belief, but because of the worthiness of Christ as the one who is believed. So in short, faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. Faith's only function is to raise its empty hands to receive what grace offers. Mm. Thanks. I've, I've really come to appreciate John Stott more and more. But, you know, I also appreciate uh, the contemporary Tim Keller who said, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Great. Yeah, Great. Stuff. I think of this at once as encouraging, but it also runs counter to our, our present day wisdom. For example, the other day uh, I was watching the trailer for the forthcoming new Indiana Jones movie. Yes, there's another one coming. Uh, <laughs> and in it, Indy states, quote, and I'm quoting here from the, from the trailer, Indy states, I've come to believe that it's not so much what you believe, it's how hard you believe. <laughs> now, I, that just jumped out at me, uh, maybe because... Um, I'm a nerd for these things, but it seems to me, circling back to the beginning of our conversation, that this is the perfect theological statement for those prosperity and health and wealth preachers, isn't it? That's right. Okay, so we could go down that, but, but before we sign off for today, Mark, where are we going to go next time? Well, let me just repeat what you gave us from Tim Keller because of just how insightful it is. It is not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith mm. that actually saves us. Wonderful, wonderful statement. It encourages me because it, when my faith is weak, when I am weak, then he is strong. I don't need to and have... And you just look to Christ. Just look strength. to Christ. Yeah. Next time, KJ, what we'll do is we'll wrap up this season's episodes by explaining how our accepting Christ's work through faith 
results in the renewal of our fellowship with God and in the restoration of our life with God in Christ. We're all dead in our transgressions and sins until we accept the earthly work of Christ. And then there's a restoration of real life in us, which is the life that we get from being in God, in Christ. What we'll see is how our Lord's resurrection assures us that behind the sin, suffering, and death that we see all around us, there lies a greater and more glorious reality. That's the reality that what appears to be the ironclad causal laws of science, what appear to be the ironclad causal laws of science are in fact mere causal regularities that God is sustaining. We saw why last time in order to make the world an inhabitable place, what appears to be the ironclad causal laws of science are in fact mere causal regularities that God is sustaining until the day when Christ returns. When our Lord returns at the consummation, it will be crystal clear to all human beings that God has created and sustained our world Mm. and that indeed nothing, nothing can separate those who have put their faith in the work of Christ Jesus from God's love. Neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even, as Paul said back in Romans 8, the powers of hell. And then, then the deepest desire of all human beings to be in unhindered, everlasting communion with God in Christ will begin to be satisfied for those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Contrary to the teaching and hopes of the prosperity gospel, Christians are not exempt from suffering. In fact, we may suffer quite terribly in this life. Yet the cessation of suffering is not our primary hope. Our primary hope is for communion with God in Christ. God's promises to us in Scripture and Jesus' resurrection assure us that to whatever degree we suffer, someday it will be over, and even our bodies will be redeemed from sin and suffering. God made us for communion with Himself. As persons, our ultimate good isn't that we aren't suffering. It's to be in unhindered, full communion with God and other human beings. And communion with God is possible because of the gospel. All of it is ours through faith, receiving what grace offers us. Mark's conversation partner for this episode has been Carl Johnson. If you found this content helpful, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your review will help others find these discussions as well. And if you have any questions about what was discussed in this episode, email us at info at whenthestarsdisappear.com. We're working on an episode to answer your questions now, and we'd love to be able to address your question. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and KJ, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear. (laughs) 